my dear friends. Thank you for tuning into this latest episode of Love Service Wisdom with myself, Rada Wepner. And in this show, I'm in conversation with Bruce Tolman, who has been in a private practice as a full-time spiritual director for the past 20 years. He works mainly with clergy from every Christian denomination, and he also works with people who are agnostic, atheist, or quote-unquote spiritual but not religious. Bruce has published many books over the years, including Archetypes for Spiritual Direction, Discovering the Heroes Within, A Thousand Spiritual Lessons, Wisdom and Peace for the Overbusy, Overinformed, Overworked, and Overwhelmed. And then his most recent book is God's Ecstatic Love, Transform Your Life with a Spiritual Masterpiece, that is commentary on St. Francis de Sales. 1660 spiritual classic treatise on the love of God. The goal of this book is to help teach people the most important life skill of all, how to love God or how to be a contemplative mystic. And in this conversation, it was kind of fun for me to talk with somebody who comes from the Christian denomination where a lot of folks that I talk to touch more on Hinduism or spirituality in general, let's say. So with Bruce, we could find God through the angle of Christianity, the the doorway of Christianity, which is what I was raised with as a child. And probably a lot of you listeners were too. We started off in a Christian denomination. Perhaps some of us still are in some form. And so Bruce and I, you know, we weave together the overlays of different traditions with the Christian tradition and how they complement each other and essentially what it means to be a modern day contemplative mystic. You can find more about him and his work at brucetallman.com. That's T-A-L-L-M-A-N, just like it sounds, tall man. And his books will be found at brucetallman.com backslash books or check out his blog at brucetallman.com. Blog. And as far as my own life, it's been a pretty busy end of summer where Krishna and I, we went out to New York with my daughter Maya to bring her into ceremony on the farm that we uh, host events at quite a bit. East Forest has been hosting events there for almost his whole career, really. And that was really magical and super special. Perhaps Krishna and I will do a podcast specifically on that. And then two, touring around New York City for Maya. I wanted to take her there as a senior year trip. She's starting college actually in just a couple days from now. And most of the time when we've gone on trips with her around the world or whatever. It's more like mountains, rivers, beaches, nature, outdoor, desert. So this was quite different where it was, let's go to the iconic global big city of New York City and expose her to all the diversity and the beauty and the magic and the history and the culture that a big city has to offer. So we did that for a few days, which was really wonderful. Saw a few Broadway plays ate lots of great food, went to museums, enjoyed summertime in New York City. 
And then Krishna and I headed down to the summer mountain retreat where it was a topic of Buddhism meets bhakti for the Ram Das Foundation Love Serve Remember with different speakers such as Sharon Salzberg and Bob Thurman and of course Krishna Das speaking and um, leading kirtan every night. There was an East Forest performance. Shantala was there to perform and also play for my classes. And Spring Washam was there as well, which was a great addition to the satsang. And I was given the opportunity to lead yoga every day for everyone and have live music, either Shantala or East Forest. And then on Sunday to guide a special ceremony, labyrinth experience. And just, it filled me up to the highest degree. I'm so grateful for that. And then we got back and Krishna got COVID from our travels. So I was the caregiver for quite a while while he got through his first official diagnosis of COVID. First time he's actually tested positive for COVID. So we took care of that and he's doing a lot better. And then recently a lot of travels just in the other realm of my world with journey space, going to ca- going to California for a few events. And then just this past weekend, we were in uh, Portland for the Horizons Northwest Conference, which was focused on psychedelic medicine and this psychedelic I don't want to use the word renaissance, but resurgence or um, growth spurt, we should say, particularly around psilocybin mushrooms. And that was quite fascinating and beautiful and interesting in its own right. So very busy these past few weeks. And tomorrow I'm driving Maya to college with my ex-husband, Bill. We're so excited for her. So life is just plucking along. Everything's fantastic. Hope your summers have been beautiful as well. And I hope to catch you soon with another Love Service Wisdom podcast. For those of you that have given it five stars on Apple Podcasts or like it on Spotify, I greatly appreciate that. Just that little bit of effort on your part goes a long way for me in making this. So thank you so much. And I really hope you enjoy this delightful conversation with Bruce Tallman. Welcome. Welcome, Bruce, to Love Service Wisdom. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for inviting me. This is wonderful. You're welcome. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to um, learn from you and your work in the world. It's um, interesting to see, you know, or learn about you that you have this merging of Christianity and spirituality, that you're sort of in that realm, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mostly, you know, the sort of mystical side of Christianity, I would say. Uh, Yeah. Rather than the sort of fundamentalist, dogmatic side. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with that, what would be the mystical side of Christianity? Uh, Well, the writings of the saints, uh, you know, um, this this book I wrote was uh, God's Ecstatic Love is is a... 21st century commentary on Treatise on the Love of God by uh, Francis de Sales. He was a a Catholic bishop. He was also a mystic. He's considered a saint and a doctor of the church. Um, 
And so his his book, Treatise on the Love of God, is about, you know, how do we love spirit or God, however you conceive of God. I mean, people have all kinds of different notions of what God or spirit is, right? So, uh, so I tried to give a 21st century update on it because his book was published in 1616. And uh, so, you know, there's been a lot that's happened in the past 400 years. And I mean, one of them is that we're all finding out about other religious traditions and hopefully coming to appreciate them. So, um, so yeah, so Christian mysticism, I mean, there's a lot of modern mystics, uh, Richard Rohr, Thomas Merton. Uh, you may have heard of Teilhard de Chardin. Do you know Teilhard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But tell our listeners about some of the modern mystics. Uh well, I think Richard Rohr is one of the wisest people on the planet. Um, he's very broad-minded and uh, inclusive and uh, enlightened, I would say. Um, and, you know, the, the, the great commandment of Christ was to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so uh, that's what most mystics are trying to do. I, probably all of them. I mean, they're trying to have a direct experience of God, however, or spirit, you know. And I think that's what Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews are trying to do, you know, at least the mystical side of those traditions. Um, I'm a fan of Thich Nhat Hanh and and the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama said that, uh, you know, rather than digging 10 shallow wells. I mean, if you dig 10 shallow wells, you'll never hit the underground river. Um, You'll never, you know, hit water. Um, So it's better to to dig one really deep well, really go into one tradition in depth. And if you do that, you will connect up with the underground river that connects all the traditions. And so my approach to Christianity and other religions is that we're all trying to connect with this source, whatever that is, um, Christ consciousness, absolute bliss consciousness, as Maharishi used to say, uh, and I was big into him for a while. Um, you know, transcendental meditation, it all, I mean, Christian meditation is pretty much the same as transcendental meditation. and. You know, it all takes us to that deeper underground river. if. Uh, you know, we hang in there and we practice consistently and we're, we're fortunate. I mean, a lot of this is just by grace. It's, you can't make it rain, but you can prepare the soil. Well, I've got a couple questions yeah, yeah, for good. you in all Excellent. of that. One, I hear that your definition of a mystic is one who lives in like connection or communion with mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Again, however you conceive of God. I mean, and however you conceive yeah. of God. So in that way, anyone who f- might feel like they're living with, would you describe it like they're living with the presence of God yeah. or with the knowing yeah. of God? The, the presence of God. I mean, there's lots of books written about uh, practicing the presence of God, you know? Uh, mm. Yeah. So uh I think that's the essence in all traditions. I mean, that's kind of the essence of Zen Buddhism, right? Is to be practice being in the present. And Eckhart Tolle, 
Um, I'm sure you know Eckhart Tolle. I mean, he wrote about the power mm -hmm. of the present or, you know, the power of now, rather. Uh, so, you know, I think that's kind of the essence of all religious traditions because that's that's really where you meet, you know, spirit or higher mm -hmm. consciousness, your true self, however you want to frame it. Uh, I've got a question for you yeah, then too. Yeah. <clears throat> Just based on my own practices, recently when I've been sitting down to meditate, I have been doing that, which is instead of maybe focusing on a mantra or witness consciousness, yeah. I've been invoking the invitation of God mm -hmm. yeah. and just feeling the energy of mm -hmm. God, which feels like mm -hmm. love, to put yeah. it briefly. But then I notice, <clears throat> because of my conditioning, being having been raised Roman Catholic, okay. <laughs> that I think of God as masculine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It's, it, and I don't necessarily want to think of yeah, God as masculine. Of course, of course. That's a huge hang-up for a lot of people. And, you know, even uh, with myself, I think I still have vestiges of this image of God I was given as a kid. I, I grew up in the United Church of Canada, which is a very liberal church. But even there, you know, they were, I mean, in the 50s, they were conveying to us somehow that God was masculine. And, I mean, it's, God is beyond gender. God is ineffable. Yes. And, you know, if we start off with the idea that God is ineffable, uh, let's approach this whole topic with humility and maybe learn from other traditions and be open to learning from each other. Um, so, you know, otherwise you get, I think, a real distortion of Christianity, and that is the kind of fundamentalist stuff that, um, you know, is very dogmatic and kind of we're right and you're wrong and it, it really I really I think think it's dangerous actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, is it is dangerous. dangerous. It does the opposite of what you would think God yeah. would exactly. want. Exactly. Exactly. Which is separation. It causes separation yeah. versus yeah. unity. Unity is where it's at. Unity of thinking. I mean we're we're into so much dualistic thinking, either or thinking and that's that's what's really polarizing things so much. Um, mm. And nobody can seem to listen to the other side anymore and, and respect the other side. So it's a, it's, a, it's a massive problem. It's a massive problem. There's so much fear. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm just going back to God as male... When I notice that I'm getting caught up on feeling this masculine energy, I then try to switch it to goddess, yeah, yeah. right? Because then I'm sure. like, okay, well, I'm just going to then bring in the goddess, mm -hmm. which then equally in a different way feels not quite mm -hmm. right okay. also. Mm -hmm. And I think perhaps it's one because it feels so unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. And again, because of our cultural yes. programming and conditioning, yeah of how we perceive the yeah, feminine. Yeah. Also, the feminine goddess language carries its own stereotypes. That's right, yeah. I think in Catholicism, uh, 
you know, I'm a, I'm a convert to Catholicism, but I was never big into Mary. But, you know, the more I think about it, uh, I mean, Catholicism has kind of made Mary into a goddess, you know, in a way. And I think that you have to have some way of, you know, connecting with the feminine side of God as well as the masculine side. And, and both are good, but one, you know, one or the other just by themselves doesn't quite work. It's like breathing mm. with only one lung or something. Mm. You know, we mm-hmm. need both. We mm-hmm. need the, the masculine and the feminine, I think. Mm-hmm. We do need both. Yeah, and to that point about Mary, I love Guadalupe. Mm. I love her. She's with me mm, a lot, okay. all of yeah. the time, as a major player. Let's just say, <laughs> in my in my inner yeah. worlds, and I hadn't thought of <clears throat> then making the meditations Guadalupe focused, which they very well mm-hmm. could be. And to your points that you made in the beginning, of taking a well really deep versus yes. broad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're all connected, I think, you know, I mean, that's unitive thinking, we're, we're connected on a unitive level, but, um, you know, that, I mean, the danger of getting into one tradition is sometimes that you don't go far enough. I think if you go far enough, you'll hit the underground river. But if you just get partially mm-hmm. into any tradition, you can become dogmatic and narrow minded. And, you know, again, which is causing a lot of problems throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And I, f- I think I see within my own life and I witness around me and other, let's just say, seekers, that because, like you mentioned and when you first started talking too, St. Francis's book was written in the 1600s yeah. before we'd even been exposed, we meaning Westerners or Anglo-Saxons, yeah. right, to all these other world yeah. religions and yeah. traditions. And now there's almost like an overexposure. Mm-hmm. It's a buffet. Mm-hmm. There's so many That's options. Right. Yeah. yeah, it is a buffet. <laughs> and then... There's a tendency, I think, for us to kind of have a little bit of the vanilla pudding and a little bit of salad and a little bit of macaroni and some beets. And there's a sampling, but not a Mm -hmm. depth. We're not like choosing and committing. There's almost even to um, a hesitancy or a resistance to commit to one. For sure. you know, I, my approach is is a degrees of truth approach, which uh, there's four ways to approach truth. One is that uh, nothing is true, which is kind of the skeptical approach. Another one is everything is true. Uh, uh, another approach is the black and white approach. You know, we're, we've got the truth, you don't. We're the good guys, you're the bad guys. And then there's a degrees of truth approach, which just means that you believe that uh, there are degrees of truth in every tradition. And so this approach allows you to be committed to your tradition and yet open to other traditions because there's truth in all the traditions, I'm, I'm convinced. And as long as you afford other people the right to take that same stance and to believe that maybe their tradition has more truth than your tradition, I mean, I, I you know, I say that this degrees of truth approach, although I'm sort of 
I think maybe even going beyond that into sort of this transcendental approach of just okay, God is God is in everything, and uh, you know, but. The degrees of truth approach, at least in the past, allowed me to be committed to one tradition and yet open to other traditions because I didn't believe that, for example, all the truth was in Christianity or Catholicism. I mean, um, it's obvious to me from reading the scriptures of other traditions like the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita that all those traditions deeply know about God too. And so, you know, uh, but the degrees of truth approach allows you to dig deeply in one tradition without becoming narrow-minded, I hope, anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and as long as you allow other people to take the same stance from their tradition, it's all good. You know, we can all learn from each other and cross-fertilize each other. Yeah, and I guess I see it in, in even a slightly different way where what I feel like I'm witnessing is the degrees of truth where it's all true and I want pieces of all yeah, of it. Yeah. Like I want to consume pieces yeah, of all of it. Yeah, yeah, which is maybe, yeah, which is kind of a consumer approach to religion or spirituality, really. Um, and maybe, or like a FOMO, like if I, I need a little bit of that because I might miss yeah, out yeah. on that that's experience right. that they're offering yeah, over there. Yeah, fear of missing out, I think that's huge. Not, you know... Maybe this is the way of spirit moving us all into learning initially about other traditions, but it's also, again, good to go deep into one tradition and and uh, and still be open to to everybody else as well. Um, mm-hmm. So your advice would be sample and pick one, yeah, and dedicate yourself yeah. and yeah. devote and learn what's really yeah. there, yeah. Yeah, although, you know, I, I think, I, I mean, uh, I was really into Maharishi and Transcendental Meditation, and then I I got into graduate school in psychology, and uh, I was working full-time and doing this heavy, you know, graduate course load. Um, and I just found that I couldn't meditate anymore. I was too stressed out all the time. And, you know, I was, I was doing yoga at that time. So I continued the yoga for a while, which was good. I mean, the transcendental meditation and the yoga were really good for me. Uh, but then I was in sort of a spiritual wasteland for a while. Um, and then I met my wife-to-be, Grace, who uh, came from kind of a fundamentalist uh, evangelical Mennonite background. And... The main thing she did for me spiritually was introduce me to the Bible, which, uh, you know, was wonderful. Uh, and, and now I look at the Bible as sort of, okay, it's inspired by God, like other traditional script, you know, scriptures of other traditions. Um, but it's written through human beings. And so it's not like, you know, this is like a science textbook or something. I mean, it's full of scientific errors and... And, and so on. It's a, it's a faith statement, like the traditions, the scriptures of other traditions. I think they're all faith statements in one way or another. Um, so my approach to God is, you know, like, we don't know God. I mean, we believe. Uh, I mean, if you go deep enough, though, you, you, you experience God more and more, and you do know God from, you know, from the heart level, not just, not just the head level. 
So, yeah. In your work with the Bible and having it be introduced from a fundamentalist perspective from your wife, is it more literal or metaphor? Yeah, it's metaphor. Uh, she didn't introduce me to a literal uh, approach to the Bible, uh, although okay. that would have been her approach at the time. Uh, but her, her parents didn't want me to marry her because I wasn't, I wasn't born again, you know? <laughs> So just to impress them, I took a course on the Old Testament, and uh, which was a horrible course. The, the professor plagiarized everything. But yeah, I actually had to open up the Bible and read it. And I opened it up at Proverbs, you know, which is all these wisdom sayings. So it's really the wisdom literature of the Bible that I get into uh, the most, I would say. And, uh, you know, there's wisdom literature in every tradition, of course. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's my, my approach is, is, yeah, it's like Richard Orr says. I mean, you know, the literal approach is important, but it's the least productive way to approach the scriptures. Um, there is usually some historical truth to the stories in the Bible, but... If you stay at that level, you know, making everything literal, um, it, it doesn't really get you into the really the depths of the scriptures or the depth of your. Could heart. you give us an example of uh, a story from the Bible that you could take symbolically and show oh, us what those symbols sure, are? Sure, sure. Uh, the whole st story of David and Goliath. You know. Uh, okay. So David is going to be the future king of Israel. And, um, you know, the, the uh, Israelites are, are warring with the Philistines. And the Philistines have this champion warrior, Goliath. Like he's this huge man. He's, you know, been a warrior all his life. And David, who was a shepherd, uh, you know, says to King Saul, the king of Israel, you know, let, let me fight this guy because I've killed a bear, I've killed a lion, you know, with my slingshot. And um, so the king lets him, lets him fight Goliath, and we all know how that story ended. I mean, he kills Goliath. But, you know, you can take that symbolically as this is, you know, how to approach the big roadblocks in your life, the, the really, you know, the, the really hard things in your life, the, the things that you can't seem to get beyond. I mean, with courage and and the help of spirit or God, you know, it's possible to overcome anything. So if you take it on that mystical level, uh, a symbolic level, it's got a meaning that you can apply today. You know, there, there probably was some historical basis to the whole story of David and Goliath. But, uh, you know, again, the, the literal approach is just sort of the beginning and you know mm. unfortunately probably 70 percent of christians and probably 70 percent of other people in other religious traditions get stuck at the literal literal level and uh you know mm -hmm. then you get into fundamentalism and and which just narrows people's minds and um yeah as i said it's a real problem i think we're seeing that in you know i'm in canada but we're always sort of watching 
the United States with trepidation to see what's going on down there. We probably know more about American politics than Canadian politics. Uh, yeah. yeah, what current misstep are we taking now? Yeah, well, I mean, the U.S. is a great country, there's no question. But, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes it does seem to, to get off track a bit. Yes, yeah. it does seem to get <laughs> off track. <laughs> when I think of the symbology, and I'm reading some a certain texts, I kind of have fun with it where I think of it like codes, yeah. and I'm like a decoder. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's as I'm reading, yeah. what else could it yeah. mean? And you're, and there's the surface level that's yeah. literal, and then if you can decode yes. it, there's a whole other rich yeah. meaning yeah. or meanings. Yeah. I mean, you could get into the same thing with with the Garden of Eden story. You know, I mean, if you take this talking snake literally, I mean, where does that lead you? It doesn't really go anywhere. But if you take it as okay, well. Everybody wants to do their own thing as if they can do that independently of spirit. And, you know, uh, on, the, on the symbolic level, it's like this is the way things happen today, too. You know, uh, that we think we can, we can exist without spirit or without God. And, and we want to do our own thing, and, you know, um, live according to our own lights, which is, you know, you can do that to a certain extent, but you just don't get the depth and the breadth that, you know, genuine religious traditions offer, genuine spiritual traditions. No, because they're all trying to reconnect you with yeah, spirits or God. that's the basic, you know, mission of every major spiritual tradition is, hmm. you know, to try and connect you with spirit. And then what happens? Well, then the, the roof gets blown off, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, hope, hopefully you open up your heart, you know, not just your mind, but your heart and your body and everything to God. And I think that's where yes. sacred sexuality comes in, too, you know, is, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, Christianity, I don't know about other traditions so much, but, but I think Christianity has done a number up until the past 50 years on, on sexuality. You know, it's been something you shouldn't even think about. The repression yeah, yeah. of it, the distortion of it. I mean, now it. there's lots of good spiritual books written about the sacredness of sexuality. It's a great gift from God, and we, you know, we need to respect this. And, and you don't want to be sort of... Uh, you know, too loose on the one hand or too restricted on the other hand. You need to find sort of a happy balance there, uh, mm. you know, between, um, you know, uh, yeah, being, you know, fully owning your sexuality but not going crazy with it. Has there ever been a form of Christian sacred sexuality? Uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, I would, I would, uh, look at the Old Testament again, although I like to call it the First Testament, and I like to call it, okay. you know, the Christian scriptures is the Second Testament. I mean, if you call it the Old Testament, uh, then it sounds like it's out of date. Um, the Song of Songs in, in, the, in the First Testament in the Hebrew scriptures, Jewish scriptures, is, is all about sacred sexuality. I mean, that's right in the Bible, and, you know, it's, it starts off with 
let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And then it goes on from there and gets more and more erotic as it goes on. So, uh, so there's that. And there's also the writings of um, Pope John Paul II. Uh, in most of his weekly audiences, for five years, he talked about sexuality, believe it or not. Hmm. And his theology of the body is really... Uh, you know, I think it's a, it's uh, it's a gift from God. First of all, uh, I think he was inspired in writing it, and um, but it is about that sexuality is a great gift from God. I mean, it's a great gift in Hinduism too. I think, right? I mean, the, oh, the universe was yeah. kind of created by the intercourse of the gods and goddesses. And we are all here because our parents had yeah. orgasms. Yeah. And that's the entire human population. Yeah, that's right. And every species yeah. procreates. Yeah. So it can't, in my view, be anything other than yeah. sacred when all of life springs out of its exactly. act. Exactly. And spirituality and sexuality come out of the same source. I think the, the source is wanting to be loved and to love. You know, mm. and that's, that's, the, yeah, union. that's the basis, the basic reality of sexuality is that's where it's coming from it's we want union with another real human being no? yeah the desire to yeah, merge body mind heart and soul mm -hmm. yeah so mm. fortunately um a lot of churches are, are finally waking up to you know sexuality is this is this powerful gift from god and and uh mm. You know, it's time we woke up. I mean, we've done such a horrible job up until about, like I said, about 50 years ago. And, you know, there's been, I, I think, thanks to modern psychology in particular, you know, that has woken us up to, like, things like self-esteem are actually good things, you know? I mean, yes, self-love. Yeah, self-love is, is a great gift from God. It's sacred. Um before psychology, modern psychology, I mean, I was taught growing up in, in the United Church that, you know, you should think of yourself absolutely last after you think of everybody else. And you shouldn't think of yourself at all, you know. Uh, you should just blot, blot out your own selfhood. Uh, you know, and I think that created a lot of mental problems for people, really, psychological problems. I mean, well, so much repression, yeah. so much confusion, yeah. the martyrdom, yeah. the abuse that then you yeah. allow to have happen to yeah. you. Yeah, exactly. The dissociation that happens. Yeah. And then out of that, the other pendulum swing is into too much individual in, individuation yeah. or the narcissism yeah. Yeah. or it's me by myself, yeah. the independence and forgetting our interdependence. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we all need to remember that we are our brothers and sisters keepers, you know. Uh, yeah, so that so I think what happened because of all the repression, you know, things have swung. The pendulum has swung to the other extreme, where you have kind of you know hookup culture, or some people even call it rape culture, where it's just like uh, you know it's just casual, super casual sex without any deep. Uh, emotional connection and mm. you know which is mm. in porn you know which is a travesty of sexuality but, oh the what the damage it's oh, doing has yeah. done is currently so it's doing men and women i mean 
Yeah. It completely... Very you know, far-reaching. For men, it completely distorts their idea of, of sexuality. And, you know, for women, it's just degrading in most cases. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think about that. The You know, those that, unlike our generations that didn't have the access that is now available to pornography, having been raised when you can have it as much as you want. And then again, the distortion that that creates, even in how we connect sexually or what someone who's using pornography so much then how they're hardwiring themselves to receive that type of of pleasure or connection. It's totally different than you would with a partner. It creates totally distorted expectations about what sex should be like. The tenderness mm. part of it just is just left out, mm. and mm-hmm. you know compassion and accepting each other's wounds and weaknesses and you know uh, yeah so. yeah there's there's going to be so much cleanup around this in generations yeah. to come. At least I hope it's possible yeah. to do. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're seeing the effects of it. I think, you know, it shows up in ways that we don't quite associate with it, but just even the levels of anxiety, depression, yeah. loneliness, yeah. separation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of, mm-hmm. I mean, pornography focuses on performance. Like I said, it leaves out the tenderness and the, you know, dialogue, the understanding, the listening to each other. Uh, you know, what do you really want from sexuality? What do I really want? You know? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So all that's mm-hmm. left out. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, the idea of pleasing another. Yeah. When it's just you by yourself, it's just self-focused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I'm still so curious that John Paul II wrote something on the theology of the yeah. body. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you see, I think he thought that Christianity had become too Platonic. You know, it was sort of spirit is good, body or matter is bad. And, and so, uh, you know, the official Christian teaching is that your body is actually an integral part of who you are. It's not an add-on. It's integral to your spiritual life, and you know we're 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 creatures who are unities of spirit and matter, spirit and body, and uh, we got to pay attention to the body. And so I think he wrote it as sort of a you know counterbalance to uh, a lot of Christian spirituality, which which was about repressing sexuality and you know mm-hmm. repressing the body. In fact whipping the body in some cases flogging yourself as if that's going to make you more spiritual you know i mean yes similar in the hindu traditions of the ascetics or other religious traditions where it's where we merge with god through overcoming the desires and needs of the body that we ignore the body which is very dualistic versus realizing we're human beings that are highly sensorial. Our skin is so so thin. Yeah. Our skin is so sensitive. Yeah. Touch is so exquisite. Yeah. We're not, we don't have armor. We don't have thick yeah. skin. So you would think that however we were created, it was on purpose 
that we can perceive so much through our senses. Yeah, yeah. It's not an accident. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I just reading in uh, somewhere in the Psalms that uh, God, God is an inexhaustible source of pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah, so exactly. We've been so hung up on pleasure, you know, and yeah, but uh, yeah, it's definitely yeah. Our senses, our bodies, are integral to who we are. I mean, uh, yeah. So as Christ said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul. And strength, and I think by strength he meant your body or your will or something. But uh, hmm. yeah, the body is integral too. You can't even imagine spiritual things if you didn't have senses. You know, you can't exactly. You, can't, you couldn't picture a sunset if you didn't have eyes. Uh, you couldn't right. hear the music of Beethoven or Mozart if you didn't have ears. I mean, this is you know these are greatly spiritual things that we would have no access to without our senses. Have you had experiences mm, like mystical or spiritual experiences through the senses of your body? Well, I was watching a sunset a while ago and, uh, you know, it was this beautiful gold, purple, mauve, you know, just, I mean, it was so beautiful. I, you know, I had this sense of sort of being one with the sunset. So, and I've had other just sort of flashes, you know, I just get flashes every now and then about sort of, yeah, all my armor is dropped, you know, and it's just like, yeah, I'm one with everything. And so it's a oneness that you feel in your body as like an, like an openness yeah, or a soft. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Emerging there yeah, too. Yeah. It's a hard opening, you know. Mm hmm. As they say, the longest journey in the world is from here to there, that 18 inches, you know, it's like... From your head to yeah, your heart. It's the longest journey in the world. So. Do you think it's possible to mostly navigate from your heart? Uh, well, you know, if, we, if we're really growing in the spiritual life, I think that's what we're doing. That's what we're heading for more and more is to live out of the heart. And uh, more than the head. I mean, the head, you know, the head is important, uh, but it's it's kind of limited, I think, in a way. And, um, you know, I, I mean, you could be um, an un uneducated person, but have a great open heart. And, you know, God just fills your heart. And you could be somebody who's highly educated and they're a jerk. So... And on the other hand, you can have somebody who's really closed down their heart and, you know, maybe they're a jerk and somebody who's broad enough intellectually to, you know, be open to everybody. So, mm. yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. so uh, yeah, but I mean, I mean if, if all these spiritual practices aren't leading you to be a more wise and loving person, they're really kind of useless. <laughs> Yeah, what would they yeah. be doing? Yeah, they can make you narcissistic. You can think that you are spiritually superior to other people because you have these mystical experiences, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. so that's a, mm -hmm. And I see that's that too, in a way of like, 
the consumerism of the mystical yeah. experiences or even the psychedelic experiences, the wanting the more, the next, the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of a never-ending mm-hmm. cycle. That the And the spiritual, uh, like the spiritual egoism that's there, I, I, I guess I just hope that there's a point where most can, like it's a stage on the journey. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you'd have enough where you realize more isn't where it's mm-hmm. at. Yeah. Yeah. There are stages to any spiritual journey. I mean, uh, I don't know. Do you know Ken Wilber at all? Yeah. Yeah. Integral yeah, psychology. Yeah. So he talks about stages and, you know, Hopefully we're all progressing through these stages, but you know, um, there's been a lot of work done similar to what Wilbur was doing in in the uh, realm of faith, and so there's personal, there's group faith where you kind of believe what you were taught to believe. You know, you don't really ask any questions, and then there's personal faith where you start asking questions. You know, what does this mean to me? Do I really believe this stuff? Um, often people feel like they're losing their faith when they get into the personal stage of faith. But actually, if they keep going and stay faithful, they're they're becoming broader and deeper, you know, and they can accept yes. more people from other traditions. And I mean, even within Christianity, there's so many divisions within Christianity and there's divisions within Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, um, but uh, uh, I mean, the goal is to is hopefully to become broader and broader, so you can accept more and more people who have different, you know, beliefs and approaches and rituals than you do. But that that takes a lot of maturity. <laughs> yeah, I just had this sense of like like a re like I, I guess I had the thought come through that was like I want we're talking about these religions that are Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. And I had the thought of like what is there gonna be a new one that comes mm-hmm. through? And I guess there's like micro new ones that come mm-hmm. through. But even like the newer one that comes through is perhaps even a blending of the mystical truths of yeah. all of them. Yeah. I think in, you know, the Beatitudes, I mean, uh, Jesus said that blessed are the poor in spirit or the humble, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the justice seekers, the peacemakers, and so on. I mean, God is not just love, uh, as Christians like to say, God is also wisdom, peace, joy, humility, patience, kindness, trust, respect. And wherever you find those qualities, you find God, whether it's in Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, or even just in secular humanism, you know, I mean, if people, if secular humanists are becoming more wise and loving, then God, spirit is working in them, whether they acknowledge it or not. Um, Mm-hmm. I think the the value of all the major religious traditions is so that you know they kind of take the blinders off. I mean, maybe people who are atheists or agnostics or humanists, you know, I, I mean, there's value in all those traditions, and I think they're they're valuable partly because they they can keep religions honest, they can critique religion and and keep us honest. Uh, but sometimes they feel like they're they're you know they're 
walking towards the sun, but they're wearing blinders, you know. And the religions. No, no, the no the the atheists. Uh, mm. You know, I mean, there's just so much more if you take the blinders off and realize that everything is sacred, basically. Right. Yeah. I, there's a quote by Albert Einstein that's something like, "You could live like." Nothing is a miracle, or like everything yeah, is a miracle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said that you know the biggest miracle in the universe is that the whole thing exists in the first place. Exactly. The whole thing is miraculous. I mean, so yeah. exactly. What are your thoughts around? Mm, I guess. Within Christianity, and it feels as if, or my perception of it is, that it is so skewed towards the masculine. Yeah. Or the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. And even in how it, you know, the stories of how it emerged and kind of, in a way, conquered the more earth-based traditions of Western yeah, Europe. Yeah. Jesus was very egalitarian. I think the church got off track somewhat. I mean, I don't think it totally got off track, but it got off track somewhat in 313 AD, where it sort of adopted the whole Roman Empire style of governance, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, it all became hierarchical. And, you know, as soon as you get agriculture, then you get cities, and then you have to have leaders and so on and you know you get this whole patriarchy going uh hierarchies and so on um so yeah i think um i mean in catholicism anyway i mean mary like i said is kind of a goddess and the church is always referred to as she and and the wisdom you know wisdom in in the first testament in the in the jewish scriptures is always feminine so Hmm. And there's Sophia, yeah, right? Yeah, Sophia is, is wisdom. That's, that's what mm-hmm. Sophia means, is wisdom. And uh, philosophia is love of, of knowledge, you know, is mm. wisdom, or love of wisdom, rather, love of wisdom. Philos and then mm. uh, Sophia. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, we're only breathing with one lung if we just have the masculine side of things. And... Um, yeah, then you get into patriarchy and abuse of women and so on. And, uh, yeah, it becomes a real problem. How are you seeing Christianity maybe helping to, um, write that ship and bring in the feminine more? Um, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think it... It happens maybe in Catholicism and the Orthodox traditions. I mean, there are lots of female saints. There's female doctors of the church. Pope Francis is trying to, uh, although I wish he would at least get on with ordaining women as deacons, at least, if not priests. I mean, I really think that needs to happen, and I think it will happen eventually. But at least he's, he's promoting women to high offices, in the Vatican. So, uh, you know, he is aware of 
this inequality and uh, even within the church, maybe particularly within the church in some ways, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm Catholic, but I, I have a lot of problems with things like not ordaining women as, as priests and bishops. I mean, I think we've, we've got to start doing that. I mean, right in the Bible, it says women were deacons. That's part of the hierarchy. That's part of the ordained orders in the church. You know, it's there in black and white. If you take it literally in Romans 16, you know, it says, it talks about women deacons. And yet the Vatican is still hemming and hawing over this. And, you know, okay, we have to look at what that meant in those days, you know, back in those days, 2000 years ago and interpret what what they meant by deacon. You know, it's just like... What comes up for me is just why not? Yeah, exactly. What's the harm? Exactly. Exactly. And women have so much to bring to the table. And, you know, like I said, we're, we're breathing with one lung. Uh, mm. Yeah. So we need, we, we really do need to work on that. And in, in Protestantism, you know, more than Catholicism, uh, I mean, they're, they're, you know, I often think about becoming an Anglican. In, in Canada, we call it Anglican. In the States, you call it Episcopalian, but I really like the fact that, you know, Episcopalians, Anglicans, I mean, the ordained women, the, the head of the, the uh, Canadian Anglican Church right now is a woman, you know. Um, yeah, it's Linda Nichols. I mean, she was the uh, Archbishop of London uh, of the Diocese of Huron, which covers London and the whole of southwestern Ontario. And then she went on to become the the primate. <laughs> I wish they'd change that word, but as one of my one of my Anglican priests who I work with in spiritual direction uh, said, "Yeah, the big the big monkey, the primate." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of outdated yeah, yeah, word for, for sure. sure. <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, I, I think. Uh, Mind you, there's other parts of Protestantism that are even more patriarchal than the Catholic Church is. And, you know, uh, yeah, so, uh, like I said, I hope we're all learning from each other and becoming broader and more open-minded. But, but. Yeah, because even within that context, it feels like, you know, you were mentioning how people, some don't have room for the differences of another, the differences of a religion. Yeah. There's there's um, not the ability to kind of let be and allow. And then if you're within a religion that doesn't honor women as equally, you're seeing that within the religion. Yeah, that's fine. Which creates a form of separation yeah. from the inside. Yeah. That's why I often think about becoming an Anglican. Because you know they've integrated women more, and mm -hmm. also Anglicans get to vote as to who becomes their priest and their bishop. And I think if the Catholic Church adopted those two things—ordination of women and voting of the laity—that that would revolutionize things. And I hope it's going to happen. I don't know. You know, uh, I think the problem with being Pope is you have to look at the whole world and pretty much anything you say or do is going to alienate somebody, you know? <laughs> Maybe there could be a female yeah, Pope. Yeah, yeah. That would be, that would be mind-boggling. That would be great. 
but you know, first you need women deacons, women priests, women bishops, and then that'll happen eventually, I think. Although even okay. a layperson can be can become pope, apparently. So yeah, hmm. you don't have to be ordained to be become pope. Okay. Yeah, you just have to be spiritually okay. enlightened. So that could happen. Um, but at least in the meantime, I'm glad that Pope Francis is is elevating women within the Vatican. I want to circle back around before our time's up to one thing that you said in the beginning where you expressed that your time with TM was similar to your time with Christianity. Christian meditation. And Christian meditation. Yeah. yeah. So is when you say Christian meditation, what comes to mind is prayer. Yeah. There's meditation and there's contemplation. Prayer is more like, meditation is more like uh, sort of, you know, uh, intellectually chewing on the scriptures or whatever you're working with. Christian meditation is well, that? Yeah, medita- I mean, these these words are used interchangeably, but in my mind, meditation is like active engagement of your mind in, you know, some spiritual reading. It could be the Bible or just some spiritual reading from some modern spiritual writer. Contemplation is when you, you kind of try to you know, shut down the thinking and just be, and just be in the presence of God. Um, so meditation, you know, some people say is the mother and contemplation is the daughter. Uh, hmm. And um, I think that's kind of useful. I mean, meditation is like your own effort, but but contemplation is infused. I mean, it's by the grace of God. Like I said, you can... You can't make it rain, but you can prepare the soil. And I think preparing the soil means just sitting quietly, closing your eyes and and letting go of your thoughts and just letting spirit flow into and through you. And And that would be Christian meditation? Yes. Contemplation? Contemplation, yeah. Contemplation. Yeah. Yeah. And so then perhaps, mm, I think of like an inviting as you do that, like an opening to, like an asking for, like I'm asking for God yeah. or Spirit to be yeah. with me as I sit here still. Yeah. yeah, you can do that as sort of your introduction to contemplation. As you can, you can verbally pray for, you know, or in your mind you can pray for the Spirit, you know, coming in and infusing itself into your, into your life, into your heart, into your soul. Um, yeah, they're pretty much the same. The only difference is when I learned transcendental med- meditation, you know, they, they gave me a Hindu mantra. And like I said, it, it was really, really good for me at the time. Uh, but then I got into graduate school in psychology and I was too stressed out to, you know, <laughs> to get into meditation. Uh, I, I still kept doing yoga and I want to pick up yoga again. I, I I'm Right now I'm doing a lot of sort of aerobic exercises, but I want to do... Uh, I want to get back into yoga for for the stretching and the flexibility, you know. I do Tai mm-hmm. Chi every day, uh, and that's also for flexibility and strength to some extent. Uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, there's cross-pollination, cross-fertilization within Christianity. There's cross-fertilization between all the major 
traditions if you're open to that. I mean, I think some traditions like Buddhism do things a lot better than Christianity. For example, their, their meditation on death, you know, is, you know, I, I haven't found anything, although a lot of saints used to, you know, they have a skull on their desk where, while they were writing, just to remind themselves that, hey, this is limited. This is time limited. And, uh, mm-hmm. The Sufis yeah, too. Yeah. Have death as part of their yeah, practice. Yeah. Yeah, and I had a Sufi as my own spiritual director for a while, and then we sort of drifted apart. But uh, you know, I, I mean, the Sufis are into the ecstatic love of God, which you know my book is about, and uh, so um, I wanted to learn from the Sufis. You know, how do they, how do they get into the ecstatic love of God? Um, so yeah, so the book is about, uh, you know, it's I think the greatest work by one of the greatest saints in Christianity, St. Francis de Sales, um, on the greatest topic, how do you love God or spirit? And I start off the book by just saying, I know God can be kind of a hang up word for people. Uh, so this can mean, uh, you know, your higher power, it can mean bliss consciousness, Christ consciousness, uh, whatever God means to you. I just use God as a shortcut, of, you know, mm. but it can mean all these different things to different people, and uh, and it does. And people come at spirituality from so many different, you know, directions and mindsets and so on. So. Uh, I love being a spiritual director. It's it's challenging, and uh, I also do marriage preparation. I've worked with almost four thousand couples in marriage preparation, and uh, that's been in the past thirty four years. Uh, and I like to teach marriage prep couples about sac- sacred sexuality as part of the course. You know, so amazing. I feel like you're probably one of the few marriage. Is it, would you say counselor? What, what did you use? Preparation? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, Marriage preparation yeah, coach? Yeah. That probably even touches sexuality. Well, I hope they do. I mean, they should. Uh, only 30% of couples in North America take any kind of marriage preparation. 70% don't. But if it's done well, I think it can be really, really helpful. You know, I teach couples communication methods. I help them practice it in front of me and give them feedback on how they're doing. And I don't know if you know the Myers-Briggs personality inventory, but I, mm-hmm. you know, we look at their different personality types and how they might interact given their different personality mm-hmm. types. And then I talk about the four stages of marriage, romance, disillusionment, or reality check, misery. And if you hang in there and keep working on your marriage, true love or season love. So, you know, mm. but you sort of have to go through the cross to get to the resurrection i think in in marriage you know marriage i think marriage i think was meant by god to be a great engine of spiritual growth because your partner will point out your weaknesses to you and you know you either i mean the ego hates that the ego hates having you know i wrote an article (laughs) i wrote an article called marriage bonfire of the ego you know, and I think it, it can be a bonfire of your ego if approached properly. I mean, that is, you either have to learn to be more humble, 
patient, kind, respectful, trusting, forgiving, or you don't succeed in marriage. I mean, you know, so it forces you to grow spiritually. 100%. You're right. And I think for couples going into it, knowing that, and knowing the stages that will come past the romance is really important to give it context. It is really important. Uh, I think the wedding industry almost sets couples up for failure because they convey this image of marriage as just this wonderful, blissful bowl of cherries. And anybody who's been married for any length of time knows that it's a challenge. It's a huge challenge in every way. So, yeah, to really learn to love another real human being who really is different than you are, you know? Mm-hmm. And have them see your yeah. faults. Yeah, yeah. And then move through them yeah. together. It's so rich. Yeah. I love that your final stage is, did you say true love or seasons love? love? Yeah, Seasons love. That's just so deep. I feel like I'm in that phase in my own mm-hmm. relationship where I say to my partner, somehow I love you more yeah. Yeah. <laughs> than yeah, the beginning. Well, that's the way it should be. I mean, I love Grace, my wife, more than I did at the beginning. And we didn't know, we didn't have a clue what we were getting into, you know, 46 years ago. We just celebrated mm-hmm. our 46th anniversary on July 31st. <gasps> Congrats. Yeah, thank you. It feels like a real accomplishment. I mean, not that yes. we didn't go through hard times. I mean, there was postpartum depression and unemployment and all kinds of struggles, you know. So, um, but those are the things that we either grow spiritually from or they crush us and we become bitter and we stay disillusioned, you know, and just cynical. Yeah. Yeah, it's a marriage is a commitment to grow yeah. together through those yeah. hard times, exactly. really. And what I see in a lot of couples or people express in their relationships is, oh, like how much is kind of clogged between them that's unexpressed or unresolved. Exactly. Yeah. I'm part of this uh, men's spirituality movement called the Mankind Project, and, um, you know, which is about healthy, healthy masculinity. Uh, Because there's so much toxic masculinity out of there. Anyway, the Mankind Project is based in uh, indigenous spirituality and Jungian archetypes. And uh, one of the things they do is they teach men how to resolve conflict safely. And so I learned how to do that. I started applying it in our marriage. It totally revolutionized our marriage. And then I started teaching it to marriage pep couples, you know. And uh, those couples love it because, you know, if it wasn't for conflict, marriage would be a piece of cake. I mean, you know, it'd be it'd be easy. But I mean, you have your goals, your partner has their goals, and what I what I hear more than anything is frustration. Uh, hmm. You know, because your goals and your partner's goals conflict. I mean, they don't always match up. So yeah. So how to resolve conflict safely? Yeah. You know, key component of marriage yeah that's the key component i think that's the key part of Mm. communication Mm -hmm. but also Mm -hmm. expressing your feelings towards each other you know and yeah and safety being a foundation of that yeah both partners feeling safe yeah Mm -hmm. Mm. 
such good stuff, such great work that you're doing out there in oh, the you're world. Doing, Bruce, where you're can doing, people find? You're doing great work too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I feel yeah. blessed. Yeah. I do. I love everything that I get to um, partake in and be involved in, and it fills me up so much like I'm sure it does mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. 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 So what's your website? So my website is just www.brucetolman.com and I am a tall man, so it's just like it sounds, brucetolman.com. Um, I also have a blog. It's www.brucetolman.com slash blog. Um, if people want to check out my books, they can just go to my website. And I have four books. Uh, and the, the latest book, God's Ecstatic Love, is on there you know, gives a description of the table of contents and the introduction and so on. And, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm hoping that, I mean, my lifelong goal is to try to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and love others as myself. And I'm hoping that my book will help other people do that, you know? So, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I yeah. love it. I look forward to reading it yeah. myself. Yeah. Well, I hope you, you find it really helpful. Yeah, I th I feel like exploring the, that love within Christianity more and more is really important for a lot of folks, and a lot of healing can be found there. And like you pointed out in the beginning, there are many Christian mm -hmm. mystics. There are, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Male and female. And you're adding to the lineage of that. Well, I hope so. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really thank you, Marissa. It. It's been wonderful.